We're now just a few weeks away from Easter, and as a, as a church, we, we want to both spend time reflecting on Jesus' journey to the cross, uh, what, what, what we celebrate every, every Easter uh, of his uh, final days in the Passion narrative. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be reading some longer-than-usual passages uh, during our Scripture reading to, to reflect together uh, on God's Word as we look at Jesus' journey to the cross. I, I love uh, the fullness of Scripture because uh, every Easter we have a, an option either to, to look at Jesus' journey to the cross, say from one of the Gospels, as they all spend a significant time looking at that final week of Jesus' life. You think about uh, what's most important when you look at the Gospels and you see the significance of the time that they spend uh, that final week as Jesus approaches the cross, is betrayed and is handed over and is crucified in our place and for our sin and is buried and is uh, there in the tomb for three days before he rises victoriously from the grave. And yet, as we zoom out in Scripture, the, the cross and the crown, the death and the resurrection of Christ are all over the pages of the New Testament because we're not only to know about Jesus' death and resurrection, but what I pray as we look at Romans 6-8 through 8, the next few weeks is that the way we live would be transformed by Jesus' death and resurrection. Not merely that we would know about it, but that we would be transformed by it. And so over these next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Romans 6 through 8, three chapters that take us to the heart of Jesus' death and resurrection, looking at what it means for who we are as Christians, what the gospel holds out to everyone, and how it changes the way that we live. Uh, however, when you entitle a sermon, The Cross and the Crown, I do feel it necessary uh, to make sure you know that this has nothing to do with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I, you know, I don't know if you got swept up into the, to the famous interview now. Um, this has nothing to do with the royal family. Um, I hope they're all doing well. Um, however, uh, for all my Hamilton fans, uh, I, uh, I'm sure you saw the, the post that uh, was making rounds uh, this past week. Uh, it, it, it basically read, so Harry and Meghan's children will be eligible to be president of the United States. Way to play the long game, King George. You know, so, um, <clears throat> so a few hundred years later, um, <clears throat> King George indeed, uh, it's not that we'll be back, but that they'll uh, be over here again taking, taking over. And so <clears throat> uh, Archie, you know, 2040-something, I think, is what we're looking at right now. 2050, maybe. Um, <clears throat> but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll leave that for another day. This has nothing to do with that crown. Um, and everything to do with the cross of Christ and his victorious resurrection. Uh, that's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the Christian faith. It's what we celebrate every Sunday, but it's what we turn our attention to, especially over these next few weeks as we approach Easter. And, and my desire for us as we look at Romans 6 through 8, which is really uh, Romans, if you include 5 through 8, is, is one of the, uh, the richest passages. That, that teaches us about fundamental truths in, in relation to our faith, justification by grace through faith in Christ, that we're made right with God. And then our sanctification, which is also by grace through faith in Christ, that we are being transformed uh, to look more and more in the image of Christ. So this series is about plumbing the depths of Jesus' death and resurrection, taking us to uh, the very heart uh, of what the Scriptures say. I think often in the Christian life, we, we desire to kind of have um, 
quick fixes uh, to our struggles uh, and pragmatic solutions to how to live a better life and uh, how to um, <clears throat> fix what, what we don't like. We, we want answers for how to feel better, how to look better, how to make more friends. We want, we want to know what the secret of good relationships is. We, we want to know <clears throat> how to advance in our career or, uh, or the academy. We want to uh, be able to just be a better us. Uh, we, we have these desires to fix things about us, and often we look for answers that are tangible, make sense, practical, and that we can put our hands to. And some of those things aren't necessarily bad. That's not my, my point. But I think the kind of change that's required in the Christian life goes deeper than just pragmatic solutions. It's not just a strategy for how to, how to live a good life and how to honor God. To, to, to live the Christian life means we, we come face to face with the realities of what Jesus has accomplished for us and his death in our place on the cross and in his victorious resurrection. That these things aren't just out there that we know about, but that we, we bring them close and they begin to change us and transform us. It gets at the issues of who we are, who God is, who we are in relation to God, what our hope is in life and death, how we face suffering, what we do with guilt and shame. These are just some of the questions that Romans 6 through 8 allows us to, to ask and answer uh, by looking at the cross. I, I was thinking about kind of maybe a, a word picture or a, a, an image in our minds to, to think about uh, the difference between pragmatic solutions for living the Christian life and uh, plumbing the depths of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and it's appropriate for Michigan, so for our friends who are visiting, um, just imagine that you were here in January when we got like a foot of snow, you know, and you were stuck on the road because it would be so overwhelming, uh, you know, driving in the snow, right? Uh, which that happened to me as well. I do have to, uh, most of the time I feel pretty good about driving on the roads when it snowed, but a recent snowstorm, I drove while it was snowing and I couldn't see the lanes uh, and I couldn't figure out, I think I was the first car on the, uh, on the on-ramp to the interstate, and so that was legitimately the first time I was scared. But uh, So say you're stuck in the freezing cold. Would you rather somebody give you those instant hand warmers? You know, I don't know if you've seen those. You can buy them in the store, and you just bend them, and then, you know, you put them in your gloves or you put them in your pockets. They're really an amazing thing. Um, I, I remember our first year that we lived here, uh, we found out that I think as, as long as it's above zero, they send kids out to play at, on the playground. Um, and so uh, that wasn't very comforting to me, um, but I just watched all these kids like adapt and adjust to like go play in the snow, and uh, even if it's super cold, they put on their snow bibs, they put on their jacket, they get their gloves. Well, we realized a, a friend gave us a tip that if you buy these hand warmers, uh, then your kid can put the hand warmers in their gloves while they went out uh, to play, and, uh, and no doubt they're very, very helpful, but there's getting instant hand warmers if you're stuck in freezing cold, and then there's being invited into somebody's house with a, a fire that's been going and stoked for a while with some strong embers that are warming the house, and, and there on the stove is, is that soup that, that's been you know, simmering there for a while. It's the kind of soup that like warms legitimately all the way, like you feel your body thawing from your head all the way down to your toes, and it opens up your sinuses, and uh, you know, you just, everything uh, begins to, to flow, and your body is warm, not just in a temporary sense, but in a holistic sense, and then you get a blanket, and you sit by the fire. That's the difference between pragmatic solutions to the Christian life 
and what Romans 6 through 8 offers us. It invites us into the warmth of God's house with the fire lit and the soup on the stove to, to warm us and to encourage us and to enrich us and to nourish us with the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's, that's where I want us to go. And in many ways, my prayer is similar to what Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, as he, uh, in that chapter, in that book, will reflect on the gospel in a similar way. But he prays for the believers there in Ephesus. He says, I pray that your eyes would be open to the hope to which you have been called, to the riches of, God, of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe the same power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. That's my prayer, is that God would open our eyes to see the cross and the crown and then to show us how to live in light of the cross and the crown. So <clears throat> I want us to see three things that are true of us because of Jesus' death and resurrection and then uh, one thing that we must do in light of those truths from Romans 6, 1 through 14. And so <clears throat> if you're not open to Romans 6 yet, go ahead and open up to, to Romans 6. And as you do... Um, I'll set the stage for us. As we come to Romans 6, uh, it, it comes after uh, Romans 5, in case you uh, were wondering. But really, in Romans 4 through 5 as a whole, the message of those chapters uh, focuses in on, on our justification, how a sinful human being can be made right with God. Isn't that the question? What does God want to do with me? And how can I have any type of relationship with God? We sometimes present a good front, but in the truth of our hearts, we know the condition of our sin. We know the condition of who we are, and sometimes we, we try to cover that up, or sometimes we just give in and despair to that reality. And Romans 4-5 through 5 shows us how God, being holy and righteous and perfect in all of His ways, allows sinners like you and me uh, to be brought near to Him. And the answer is simple and yet profound. The way sinners can come near to a holy God is by grace through faith. Grace that's offered to us in Jesus' death in our place and for our sin, and faith in Him, receiving what He has accomplished in our behalf. This is what justification is all about. Through faith in Christ, we're made right with God. <clears throat> and we see that not only are our sins forgiven, but we're counted righteous in Christ. It's not only that the, the slate is wiped clean, but it's that we're, we're the, the heaping of God's righteousness, that which we couldn't, uh, couldn't bring up within ourselves, is given to us by Christ. <clears throat> we see in Romans 4, 4 through 5, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as, uh, not counted as a gift, but as his due. This is why you don't say thank you when you get your paycheck, right? You earned it. You worked for it. I mean, you should you know, certainly be grateful that you have a job and all those things, but um, <clears throat> you should be thanked as you pick up your check, right? Because it's, it's what you're due for the work that you've done. Well, salvation isn't like that. It's not a paycheck. It's a gift. There's nothing that we could do for it. It says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. There's the language of not only forgiven, but being counted as righteous. And all of this, uh, as Paul gets to, to Romans 5, he unpacks the implications of our justification, that we have peace with God, that we're reconciled to God, 
that, that we're not just like, it's not like God just kind of lets us in the house, you know, but we have to sit at the kid's table or, or you know, or we have to wait out back, you know, and, and we can't really come in close. It's that he welcomes us fully in and sits us at the table and says, you're reconciled, you're welcome. You have a seat with your name on it. That's what our justification allows us to do. We have the riches of God's inheritance and his righteousness. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, we see that we're no longer in Adam. That's the condition of every human being at birth, that we are in Adam. And being in Adam, we are enslaved to sin. We may not be as sinful as we could be. We may not always sin in every possible way. But we're bound by sin and we're guilty before a holy God. That's the jersey that we're wearing. We're entering into one of the best times of sports in all year. March Madness. The beauty of 64 teams competing for the national championship that we were deprived of last year. It's all about what jersey you have on, right? Well, if you have on Team Adam, the truth is you're not winning the championship. You're not even making it to the dance because you're guilty and condemned in sin. But there's another team. There's another jersey that we wear, and that's to be in Christ. <clears throat> to be in Christ means that no longer are we condemned and enslaved to sin, but now we're forgiven. And we're enslaved, if you will, to grace. Grace now rules and reigns in our life. No longer does sin rule and reign. But grace rules and reigns through the work of Christ. If we were all condemned in Adam, we are justified in Christ, is what Romans 5, 12 through 21 says. And it gets down to verses 20 through 21, and it says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned to death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The implications of all that Paul has been saying up to this point is to say that sin no longer reigns, but grace reigns. And and the implication of the gospel, the radical implication of the gospel, uh, is that no longer should we think that we could earn our way into God's good graces. No, No longer should we be delusioned by thinking that we could do enough to make God okay with us and to to make him overlook our sin. And instead, what it shows us is that God has done everything that we couldn't do. God has come in Jesus Christ to live the life that we couldn't live. To die in our place, bearing our sin. He was our substitute, is what the Bible says. And not only was He our substitute, but our representative. That in Him, we we find our new identity. In Him, we find forgiveness. In Him, we find new life. And the, the grace of God is greater than any sin. As as you read Romans, um, and you think about what Paul is saying, and we're going to see it in the chapter here in just a minute, when when you really think about grace and how radical it is, you you mean to say there's no sin that's greater than the grace of God? There's nothing I have done, I could do, that would would enable the grace of God to not cover it? Yeah, that's, that's what he's saying. That's how radical grace is. There's there's no sin, no sinner that's beyond the reach of grace. Where sin runs deep, God's grace is deeper. And you think, well, I've got some pretty deep sin in my life. Or or maybe you're, you're rejoicing as you hear me say that because you know your sin. 
And you know how God's forgiven you. You know how deep His grace is in your life. And if I asked you, you could testify. Or maybe you think to yourself, yeah, I I hear what you're saying about grace, but I'm way more convinced that my sin's pretty deep, and I'm not so sure that God's grace is deeper. Well, what Paul says is where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It abounds all the more. And Romans 6 is going to show us as we move from justification to sanctification that, that there's a question that arises. When you understand the gospel, it, it, it could lead some to say, okay, if God's grace is so great, what's the big deal about a little bit of sin? What's the big deal if I sin a little bit? God's grace always abounds more than my sin. So when I sin, then God's grace looks all that much better. And that's what brings us to Romans 6. And the first truth I want us to see is that we are dead to sin. Look at verses 1 through 2. And this question is arising out of what we just looked at. The grace of God reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life. And Paul says, what shall we say then? He's letting you into a conversation, a rhetorical conversation that he's having with himself. Uh, Don't think that anything is wrong with him. It's for our sake and our good that he's having this conversation with himself. Um, But he's letting us in. And and he says, some of you might be thinking, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace is so great, then do we just get to go on with our sin? I mean, right? God's so gracious and loving, he'll forgive us. It's not that big of a deal. That might be the implication or the thought that some would have. Paul says, you you don't really understand grace if you're asking that question. Because he says... By no means, older translations would say, God forbid. By no means, God forbid that we would think that the grace of God would excuse our sin. Because the grace of God that comes to us and saves us from our sin intends to change us, to transform us out of our sin. And he says, by no means, God forbid... Look at the second part of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he's saying here, in response to the question, can we continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers, by no means. God forbid that we would think so. Why? Because we've died to sin. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Notice that it doesn't say here that it does not say that those who live under grace will not sin doesn't imply that. It says that we cannot live in it. Those who are justified by grace through faith in Christ, you've experienced God's grace for yourself, doesn't mean that there won't still be sin in your life, but it means that you're no longer comfortable with sin. You don't live in it. You don't make peace with it. We cannot decide that we want our sin and therefore go on sinning, presuming that God's grace would be there to forgive us. Paul says God's grace is greater than all your sin, But if you really see how deep your sin is and you believe that God's grace is deeper, you can't say, I want His grace and then go on sinning. The grace of God that saves us is intended to transform us. We saw that as we studied the book of Titus. And so he's he's unpacking this here to say the grace of God intends to change us. And and the fundamental way it changes us at part is our relation to God, our relationship to sin. It changes the way we relate to sin and the way that sin operates in our life. So after experiencing grace, what Paul is saying here is that you don't make peace with sin. 
after experiencing grace, you, you're not comfortable just going on sinning and not repenting. You're, you're not okay with going on sinning and then diminishing its significance or excusing it by thinking, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No, he says, <clears throat> if you know God's grace, you know that you're dead to sin. And we need to unpack, what does that mean? But before I unpack it, I, I, just, I just present this here as a, on, the, on the front end. I know that none of us probably would say with our mouths that it doesn't matter how I live. God's grace is greater than my sin. But do you functionally ever live that way? Do you functionally allow yourself to go on in your sin? Presuming that God's loving and gracious, he'll forgive me. See, there's a difference between knowing when you've sinned that God is gracious and forgiving and presuming upon God's grace, thinking, it's not that big a deal if I sin a little. That's, that's, that's the difference. What Paul is saying here is not that we won't sin. And, and not that he's trying to rob the Christian of the confidence. And oh, the, the rich confidence that when we do sin, we have one who is, who is interceding on our behalf. The righteous one with whom we can go and confess our sins. And he's faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 says. That's our confidence and our hope, and, and yet how we can abuse that grace. Are there sins that you've become comfortable with? Are there sins that, perhaps worse than becoming comfortable, that just have nagged at you so long that you've given up hope maybe that you can have victory over those sins? Discouraged and defeated by sin. Romans 6 tells us that we're dead to sin. We're dead to sin. In what sense? We've already said that <clears throat> sin is still present in us and tempts us regularly to give in to it. So this isn't about our ability to sin. Christians sin. This isn't even about the desirability of sin. Sin will still look desirable. <clears throat> sin will still tempt us to believe that it's offering us something better than what God has. It's still powerful and deceptive leading us at times to reject all that we know about God and go headlong into our sin, which we know dishonors Him. And sometimes we find ourselves in sin before we've realized it. So all those things are true about sin. So what does Paul mean when he says that, that as a believer, those who have trusted in Christ, that we're dead to sin? I think the key is similar to what he was talking about in Romans at the end of Romans 5, verse 20. We're free from the reign of sin. We're free from the ongoing reign of sin in our life. God now reigns by grace through faith in the life of the believer. Sin no longer reigns. Sin no longer calls the shots. And so to say that we, we are dead to sin means at the most fundamental level, the guilt and the condemnation of sin has been lifted from us and placed on Christ and put upon Him. That's justification. That's what it means to be dead from sin. And now Paul's drawing out the implications for our sanctification, our growth in the Christian life. Showing us that because we've been forgiven of the guilt and the condemnation of sin, we are no longer bound to allow it to call the shots in our life. We're dead to its rule and reign in our life. To say as Paul does in Romans 5, 20-21, that grace now reigns, means that God reigns through the gracious provision of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And, and all of this is to say that sin no longer dictates the life of the Christian. If, if you, uh, you know, you remember when you were a kid and you asked, um, uh, I, I had this happen to me all the time, um, <clears throat> you'd, you'd ask, can I go to the, to the restroom? You know, the teacher would say, well, I think you can, but the question is, may I, right? Can I have permission, right? Uh, so what, if you think in that light, <clears throat> you may obey sin, that is a possibility, and, and in fact, we know and experience that we will obey sin at some times. That, that its power and presence is still there, drawing us to choose it over God. But the fact now is that we, we no longer have to obey it. Before Christ, sin called the shots, whether you realized it or not. Your desires were for things other than God. Even if your desires were for morality... Your life wasn't aimed at God receiving the glory as your maker and your redeemer. And so everyone apart from Christ, even the best person who does the best amount of good deeds and is the most upright person, they're enslaved to sin. They're bound to to listen to sin and follow sin. doesn't mean that they always are the most sinful they could be. But we're all sinful and condemned before God apart from the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so when we come to Christ, we come to faith in Christ, we no longer have to obey it. We can look at sin and say, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. You don't call the shots. Not merely because we're disgusted by our sin, but because we have confidence that we belong to God through faith in Christ. Our confidence is found in our union with Christ, which is the second truth that we, we see in, uh, in verses 3 through 10, that we're not only dead to sin, but we're dead to sin primarily because we are united to Christ. Our union with Christ, if I could say it this way in, in many ways, our union with Christ isn't just like a little part of our salvation. Really, it's the, it's the totality of it. Everything flows from our union with Christ. To be united to him, particularly in his death and his resurrection, is everything. It's through our union with Christ that we're justified. Through our union with Christ that we are working out our sanctification. And through our union with Christ, we one day have the confidence that we'll be glorified. Our union with Christ is everything. It's what gives us our adoption in Christ. That we're sons and daughters of God. And it's what brings us into the church. If you look at the scriptures and you just look for that little phrase, in Christ... That's the key. In Christ speaks of our union with Christ. With Christ. In Christ. Through Christ. Christ is our hope in life and death. Christ is the reason that we can have confidence that we're dead in sin, particularly because we're united to Him. Verses 3-4 through gives us the reality of this union. And, and do you notice, look at verse 3 how it begins. Do you not know? Paul's bringing out things that believers should know that these are foundational to the Christian life. Digging deeper here isn't a waste, but it's necessary. It's essential truth. And so he describes our our union with Christ through the language of baptism. Look in verse 3. It says that, Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, buried, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised through the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see the cross? Do you see the crown? We were buried with Christ in his death. And we've been raised with Christ. 
And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too walk in newness of life. The essential point that Paul is making, one commentator says, is that the Christian has a personal, vital identification with Jesus. And that union with Christ, that we are united in Him and His death and His resurrection, is portrayed through baptism. Baptism in the Christian life is the outward testimony of what has taken place when a person puts their trust in Christ. And and what what Paul is saying here is that when we trust in Christ, not only do, do do we put our trust in Him, but we are participating with Him in the sight of God in His death and in His resurrection. His death and His resurrection becomes our death and our resurrection, both in the now and the not yet. We now walk in newness of life, empowered by the Spirit. We'll unpack that in Romans 8 in a few weeks. But we also await and have the confidence of our future resurrection, that one day we'll live with Him forever. So it's now in newness of life, and not yet one day we will live with Him forever. In many ways, the Christian life tells or the, our union with Christ tells us that, that it's not just that what Jesus did for us um, we, can, we can claim for our own, but, but literally, if you will, Jesus himself becomes our own and we become his. Our union with Christ is that foundational truth that we see in the Old Testament and repeated in, in Revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's what our union with Christ tells us. That that promise of God, that he will be ours and we will be his, is fundamentally true for us because we are united by grace through faith in Christ. Since Jesus died, we died. And dead people are free from sin's guilt and reigning power. So we are free from sin's guilt and reigning power. Since Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too live in resurrection power unto God's glory. What is His is ours. And verse 11 brings all this to to bear and we see that we are dead to sin and alive to God. We are dead to sin and alive to God because we're united to Christ. And verses 5 through 10 really unpacks what it fully means to be united to Christ. And I just want to point out a few things, and, and then we'll, we'll move on to, to the next point. But look at verse 5 and look at verse 8. They really repeat the same truth. In verse, four, in verse 5, it begins with the word for, right? You see that? And, and what, what that means for us is that verses 5 and following are really unpacking why we can be confident that we have newness of life in Christ. That we have died with Christ and, and we have this newness of life with Christ. And it says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The shall and certainly are hard to say together. Shall, shall, shall. But look at, look at verse 8. It says the same thing. We've, we've been united with him in a death like his. We'll, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So it's, it's doing two things. It's reminding us of what's true in the past. That when Christ died, we died. Jesus died in our place and for our sin. And because of that, we can be confident that we also will share in his future resurrection. So our newness of life now is, 
is, is, really, uh, in, is really encouraged and fueled by these two truths, that we've died to sin in Christ in the past, and that we have the future hope that we will one day live with Christ forever. So past death to sin and the death of Christ, the cross, future resurrection in the, the last day when Jesus returns, the, the fullness of the resurrection, is what anchors us in the present to walk in newness of life. And those two truths he repeats in verses 5 and verse 8. And so what's interesting is what follows in verses 6 through 7 and then in verses uh, 8 through, through 10. It, he tells us that our confidence that, that we've, we have this newness of life is grounded in, in the death of Christ and our union with him and in his future resurrection that we also will live with him. <clears throat> and he goes on to, to really say... We have this confidence. We know. It's the language of, of know and believe uh, that's so key in, this, in these, these verses. If you look in verse 6, we know. Verse 8, we believe that we will live with him. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. This is the confidence of the Christian. And we have confidence that we walk in newness of life now, that God's grace really is transforming us because we've been freed from sin. This is what verse 6 says. We've really been freed from the guilt and the reign of sin through uh, the, the death of Christ. It says that we know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What Paul is saying, our old self is the totality of who we are apart from Christ. It's, it's who we are in Adam, if you use the language of Romans 5, 12 through 21. That old self has died. When, when Christ died in the sight of God, our old self died. And when we, in the present, put our faith in Christ, the past work of Christ is applied to our account. So it says that our old self was crucified with him for this purpose, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Body of sin is kind of a, a unique statement. It's not literally talking about our skin, our, our, our body, but it's our body, um, if, you, if you could imagine it this way, our body that's, uh, that's ruled by sin. Our, our sinful nature, human nature, under sin's sway, if you will. It's the, it's the human condition apart from Christ and, and those sinful desires and passions that, that exist and, and that tempt us to disobey God and to reject Him and to rebel against Him. He says that we've been crucified so that our body ruled by sin would be brought to nothing, that, that we would be freed. We would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been justified or set free from sin, he says. So the the, the guilt and the condemnation and the ruling power of sin has been done away with. All of that, think justification, is gone. And the ruling power of sin that influences us to turn away from God, think sanctification, is broken. That's what he's saying. He's, he's reminding us our newness of life is grounded in what Christ accomplished on the cross. That we really are freed from sin. That its power is broken. But I think the next part, verses 8 through 10, are particularly important. Because what happens when it doesn't feel like the power of sin is broken? What happens when you aren't feeling that? When it doesn't feel like you've got the upper hand on sin, but instead sin has the upper hand on you? 
when sin's sway seems stronger than it was last week or last month, or that, that passionate pursuit of God seems like a distant memory. Your heart's affections for God have grown cold. What happens when it doesn't seem that it's true? You see, because all that it's saying here, it's saying these things are objectively true based on what Christ has accomplished. When it doesn't seem true, verses 9 through 10 tell us that we need to look to Jesus. You see what he does? He repeats what we saw in verse 5, that the one who has died has been set free from sin. If we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll live with him. Here's what we know. Now the emphasis on the resurrection. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He moves from talking about what's happened to us to talking about what Christ did for us. That he died to sin. And being raised from the dead, he will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I think, I think perhaps one of the things that keeps people from following Christ is the fear that maybe they can't really go through uh, you know, on their part on really following Christ. What if I fail? What if I don't really um, follow God the way that I should? And we are, we're reminded when we look at the, uh, the work of Christ on our behalf and his death and his resurrection is God not only bids us to fly, John Bunyan said, but he gives us wings. God not only commands us to follow after him and walk in obedience to him, but he gives us his spirit to enable us. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in us. So he gives us what we need to follow him. But also, I think one of the things that can be such a challenge, which I mentioned earlier, is, is the discouragement that comes when, when sin has the upper hand in our lives. When, when we just can't get out from our own way. When our, when our lust lure us back, when our anger gets the best of us, when envy and gossip rise up within us, when selfishness is at the core uh, of, of how we operate, when, those, when that sin ensnares us and the discouragement that comes that I'm here again, this again. In those moments, remember Jesus. He died for you. And He died to sin once and for all. He took care of the penalty and the, the condemnation of sin, and the, the reigning power of sin. And he rose. And he rose once, not once and for all, but forever he lives. And he lives to God. And he's defeated sin. And he's defeated death. And if you're united in him, then what's true of him is true for you. That you died to sin. That you have life now and forever. That God is working in us to accomplish His purpose, to make us more like Him. And when you doubt it, just keep coming back to Jesus and thinking about Him until you yourself once again believe that it's true. Pour out your heart before God, but confess what you know to be true about who you are in Christ. We're dead to sin because we're united to Christ. All that, he, all that is His is now ours. And really the challenge of the Christian life is to live like it. And that's, that's in the midst of these statements about who we are. We have this command in, in verse 11. So, you also, in light of what's true of Christ and his death and resurrection, must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, in these verses we see that God's calling us to become an experience, an actuality, who we are in Christ. We see the first thing is aligning our mind and our will with who we are in Christ. 
All these things are true of us based on what Christ has accomplished. But in our daily life, we have to line ourselves up with God. We, we have to reckon ourselves, consider. We have to uh, think about our new status in Christ, our identity in Christ, dead to sin and no longer reigns, alive to God. Now he reigns by grace through faith. That's our status. That's our condition. And if you think, okay, that's good, now, but what else? No, really, keep coming back to this. Like, this is the thing, as I thought about this week, I, I thought in my, in my own life, in my own journey of discipleship, my own growth as a, as a follower of Christ, I've, I've heard this sermon I don't know how many times. I've read this passage, if you look at Romans 6-8 through 8 in my Bible, all the words are circled and underlined. But I, I need a new Bible to underline and circle them because I need this truth again today and yesterday and tomorrow because it's that foundational to the Christian life. You're united to Christ. And for all of eternity, we are going to marvel at that reality. And so if we think that we've exhausted it now, we have more digging to do because it's better than we imagined. We're united to Christ and we have to align our mind and our will with that truth. And then he goes on to say in verses 12 through 13, he gives us a picture of how sin works. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Sin's temptation, uh, sin's desire is to reign in our bodies, making our bodies, the members of our bodies, actually obey its sinful passions. And so he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. On one hand, it sounds too simplistic. Say no to sinful passions and give yourself to God. But that really is the key. But you have to understand how it works. That sin tends to rule us, calling the shots in our life. It takes place tangibly with our hands, our feet, our minds, our thoughts, our actions, our words. It does those through sinful passions that appeal to us, saying, this is good. This, this deserves a little pleasure. You deserve to put them in their place. It entices us, lying to us, telling us that we're going to be satisfied. And instead, it enslaves us. And then from it follows guilt, shame, discouragement, disillusioned. And if persisted on until death, it leads to judgment, separation from God, eternity in hell. That's why Paul keeps coming back to it, saying, remember what God has done for you. Resist, as the believer, resist those sinful passions instead this doesn't take place passively by saying, oh, I don't want that. But it takes place actively. Give yourself to God. Run after Him. Sin's waging war on you. There's a lot of battles. Some of them we may lose. But here's the thing about sin in the life of the believer. <clears throat> in the life of the believer, we never tolerate sin. And we never stop making progress against sin. So in your life, how are you doing in the battle? Are you tolerating it? Have you stopped progressing? The, the growth trajectory of the Christian life isn't a straight line from the left corner to the upper right. It's a jagged edge through and through, but sustained upward towards God and towards glory through His grace. That's the calling of the Christian life. And He's given us all that we need through our union with Him. And then in verse 14, to, to wrap it up as we close, he says as a reminder, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. It's the final point. 
we're under grace. This is what he said in verses 20 through 21 of Romans 5. It's Paul's closing exhortation, so to speak, here. Because it's grace that sustains us in resisting sinful passions and in giving ourselves to God. That's why the four is there. We, we give ourselves to God, present ourselves to God towards works of righteousness because we're under grace. You have to ask yourself, what is a better master? Your sin or God's grace? What satisfies in the end? I ask you from your experience. Have you found your sin to be satisfying and fulfilling and life-giving? Or have you found God's grace to be satisfying, fulfilling, and life-giving? As we think about the reality of being under grace, we have to ask ourselves, which one's reigning in our life, sin or grace? And how we respond to that perhaps means that today is the day to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, receiving the grace that he provides through his death and resurrection. And believers, as we think about living in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, perhaps we need to return to this truth of our union with Christ. Remember who we are. Remember who we are in him. And then get after fighting sin in our life with the confidence, not that it makes us right before God, but the confidence that we've been made right before God and our justification. And His grace sustains us as we grow to be more and more like Him. Let's pray.